everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm your host, Heidi E. Wilcox, bringing you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you who are looking to connect with where your passion meets the world's deep needs. Today on the podcast, I had the privilege of talking to Dr. Michael Peterson, professor of philosophy and religion at the seminary. We talk about his recently released book, C.S. Lewis and the Christian Worldview. We'll link to this book in the show notes so you can pick up a copy if you haven't already done so. His book engages Lewis philosophically and provides a comprehensive framework for Lewis's worldview. We talk about things like the relationship between faith and science, the problem of evil, what we can learn from Lewis's worldview, and how we can appropriately apply it to our own lives. Let's listen. Dr. Peterson, thank you so much for joining me today on the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm very excited to have you here and to get to talk about your book, C.S. Lewis and the Christian Worldview. So thanks for joining me today. Well, you're certainly welcome. Glad to be here. Yeah. So you're a professor of philosophy and religion at Asbury Seminary. Um, How do you like teaching at Asbury Seminary? I love it here. I've been here about a decade, but I had spent several decades of my teaching career uh, at the university level, and uh, I was all about engaging culture and intellectual uh, circles to help Christian beliefs seem uh, rationally credible, and uh, spent a lot of my career in uh, that particular setting. Uh, But after coming here, I see that those same concerns translate very well, I think, uh, and try to bring that particular dimension to um, uh, seminary education of engaging culture and making sure we are good stewards of the intellectual aspect of Christian faith. So I am just having a ball. Awesome. Um, (laughs) Awesome. What classes do you teach at the seminary? Well, I teach the required philosophy of Christian religion, which is a very broad-based introduction, and everybody has to take that. Um, And then I teach the C.S. Lewis course called C.S. Lewis and Christian Faith. I teach science and Christian faith, because my PhD is actually in philosophy of science, and I do quite a bit. Yeah, I do quite a bit with the... um, uh, you might call it the science-religion dialogue or the science-religion debate in general culture, which is everybody's got to be aware of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so we we tie into that in that course. And then I do a course on suffering and tragedy and Christian faith, which is about the uh, problem of evil, problem of mm-hmm. suffering. If God is good, why does this happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody, everybody knows that perennial human question. Yes, yes. What prompted your interest in C.S. Lewis? I began reading Lewis as an undergraduate philosophy major, um, and mostly as just as philosophical works. And I thought they were a model of not just intellect and passion in pre- in presenting the what I would call the reasonableness and the attractiveness of Christian faith. And, um, he, you know, Lewis was highly trained in philosophy. He was, Mm -hmm. I think he's an excellent philosopher, but he's not a professional philosopher. He's a communicator to the general public. 
And so some of his critics, you know, will say, um, well, he's not a technically precise philosopher. And in my view, they don't read him closely enough or sympathetically enough. But uh, I could see from early on, when I began reading Lewis as an undergraduate, I could just see that so many of his ideas were rooted in very good philosophical background. And um, so, you know, even in my book, I try to give him um, a representation that is maybe a little more academic than uh, some of his more popular books would seem. But it's the same ideas getting um, better representation at an academic level. Mm-hmm. Yes, I really enjoyed reading your book, by the way, just so you know. Well, That's thank very, you. Thank very you. good. Yeah. Have you read all of C.S. Lewis's works? I have not read everything. Uh, I read mostly his philosophy books. There's just a handful. and uh, But he's got a lot of philosophical essays. Yes, he does. Academic and, and collected books, you know, with those essays compiled. Um but particularly his his uh, scholarship on medieval literature and poetry, I don't read a lot, um, unless it has some uh, part of it that uh, has a philosophical uh, interest for me. Um, of course, yeah. with our children, raising the children, we read the fantasy and the fiction. <laughs> mm-hmm. Of course. What it's, is your favorite work of Lewis? Actually, um, my favorite is maybe his simplest and uh, it's Mere Christianity. Hmm. That's yeah. his series of radio broadcasts done during the war. And he bonded uh, so much with the um, people in Great Britain by doing that and just trying to speak as a communicator to a wide variety of people during a very tough time uh, about what Christianity really is all about. And uh, so... I think the reason it's my favorite is, number one, you see a, a really uh, erudite person knowing how to communicate in interesting ways and very clear ways. These are some of the best expressions. That's why the book is, is so much beloved in, in Christian literature, just the clearest expression of Christian faith. And um, um, I think the... Part of it that I like the best is his Trinitarianism. He works in the book toward uh, a view of God as Trinity, and he's a social Trinitarian, uh, that God is a real fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to be able to do that over really over BBC radio broadcasts in short little snippets, and then it all gets put into that book, uh, that's an amazing piece of communication on the one hand, and it's also incredibly orthodox Christian mm-hmm. in, in putting uh, the, the Trinity at the center of Christian theology. Yes, I had never heard the explanation of mere Christianity until I read your book. And it was talking about what the word mere means. I had thought it was um, just Christianity, but I was yeah. really fascinated to hear that it was just pure, unmixed Christianity, I think to me, it gave the book a whole new meaning or a whole new dimension, I guess. Yes. Yeah, I agree. A lot of people think they use the modern sense of mere, which means small or diminutive yes. or insignificant or something like that. But um, 
No, he meant it to be uh, unadulterated by non-essentials. And what he says in the in the early pages of the book is he's going to avoid denominational preferences and sectarian interests because those are off-putting to a non-believing public. Mm-hmm. And they, mm-hmm. they actually put, put the believing community off in uh, more narrow directions than they should be going as well. And so he tries to stick to just historic orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And that's actually had a revival in our day in the last several decades. Uh, the great Tom Oden, uh, his work, um, we see N.T. Wright, uh, his work, all now coming back to uh, saying, yes, that's our guidepost, that's our touchstone is orthodoxy, not our denominational um, preferences and agendas. Mm-hmm. Why is Lewis so revered then as a philosopher and theologian? I think um, <clears throat> that the Christian community and Christians from so many different traditions, they just love Lewis, although he's really not a professional philosopher and he's not a professional theologian. Interesting. Uh, he, was, he was trained in philosophy. He was trained in literature um, and took, uh, you know, uh, prestigious honors in both fields but he ended up in literature, technically uh, a professor of literature, both at Oxford and then later at Cambridge. Um, I think it's because it's Lewis the communicator, and it's not just a kind of a bare intellectual truth. He has a rich imaginative life, and he knows how to communicate that. He knows how to communicate very well to people. And what he communicates is nourishing. Mm-hmm. It's it's significant, it's important, it's the deepest level of um, thought about God and thought about how to live our lives with God. Mm-hmm. Yes, when I was reading your book and you pulled quotes from different pieces of his work, it just helped me think about God in ways that I may have had questions about or been thinking about, but maybe didn't have the words or the space in my head to think about it that way. So I, yeah, there was, yeah. I would totally agree with that. Oh, it's, it's amazing. Some of the images he uses, uh, the central image I think that he uses in all of his literature would be that of the great dance. Mm-hmm. And see, that's such a rich, colorful image. Um, and it was thought of by St. Gregory of Nazianzus in the 5th century when he was reflecting on John chapters 14 through 17. When Jesus, there's also this language in those chapters. Jesus says, if you abide in me as I abide in the Father. And so this language of abiding or dwelling in, uh, Nazianzus was reflecting on that and thought of God as a kind of a dance, um, a giving and receiving of mutual respect and honor and love. And he envisions the inner life of God being, quote unquote, the great dance. Mm-hmm. And Lewis mm-hmm. makes that his, I think, his signature image in all his works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It comes up Which, late in mere Christianity. And he also has about 10 pages devoted to it in uh, Paralander. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful image. It is. 
So earlier this year, in January, I believe it was, you published your newest book, C.S. Lewis and the Christian Worldview. So I was just hoping that you could give us an overview of this book so that I can learn more about it and that our audience can hear more about it as well. Sure. Uh, The book came out in January in the U.S. I think it was uh, out in April in the U.K. and worldwide. But I wanted that book to fill a gap, and I'd seen that gap literally for decades in all the writings about Lewis, the commentaries, and so on. I mean, works that are on his fantasy and fiction are abundant. And the retellings of his life story, his biography, are abundant. Mm -hmm. But there's a gap in engaging him philosophically. And, uh, you know, there are some books that do that, just a few, and mm-hmm. a few essays or books of essays, but they're topical, they're selected topics. And I thought there's no book out there that gives a comprehensive framework for his worldview. And even if you look at my table of contents, which I've been, I've been working on that in my head for decades. I just never had time to write the book until recently. Uh-huh. Um, the table of contents is a kind of a template for how you can think about Christian worldview uh, as Lewis approaches it. And um, so we treat, we treat his arguments for the existence of God, um, arguments from reason, morality, and joy, search for joy. Those three are distinctively Louisian. Mm-hmm. And then uh, his central ideas of incarnation and Trinity form the middle of the book. Those are very rich, if you ask me. He's amazing. Yes. Uh, and then we then it plays out on very important philosophical issues like problem of suffering, um, science and scientism, um, um, the problems of prayer and providence. I have a chapter on that, uh-huh. and, and how and the fate of the unbelieving, the the, the fate of the unevangelized. I have a chapter on that. What do you do with people outside the faith who, through no fault of their own, have never heard the gospel, let's say, or never heard a credible presentation of the gospel? Right, right. Yeah. And he's, he, he's, so then once you have the buildup through the middle of the book, we, it plays out on all these kinds of issues in the final chapters of the book. Mm-hmm. What did you learn from your research and writing? Did you learn anything new as you wrote this book? Well, I learned um, how vast the literature on Lewis really is. Uh, I mean, I knew it was vast, but just diving into it felt like diving into the ocean. I learned how much energy there still is for Lewis. It's amazing. Um, I think it was at the turn of the millennium in the year 2000, I was looking at a survey by Christianity Today magazine on the best Christian books Mm -hmm. of of the 20th century. And they, I think they surveyed, was it a hundred or so of their best authors and consultants? And Lewis's books took the t- seven of the top ten. Wow. And Mere Christianity was number one. Wow. And Screw yeah. Tape might have been number two. Great Divorce was high. It's just, it's crazy. Yeah. It's not surprising. I mean, were you surprised by that? Um, no, not, not, I, well, okay. not that, I, I don't know whether I was surprised or I was just almost um, um, 
I was almost pat to pass out that he'd take seven out of 10. Uh, I thought a few, but seven out of 10, but it just shows you that over time, the Christian community has really bonded mm-hmm. with, with Lewis. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the central element to Lewis's Christian worldview? Well, I think that um, uh, Lewis's idea of, of orthodoxy, that it's within historic Christian orthodoxy that we find um, clarity on who God is and uh, how we properly relate to God. Mm-hmm. I think that um, when he envisions God as a trinity, as we were mentioning, I think that's very central. And, um, and then his, his, his call to all people as whole persons, not just to be intellectual, but to use your intellect and, and to the best of your ability. Everybody's going to vary, but you have to use your intellect to find truth about God, but you also have to, to feel this almost existential or, or uh, deeply personal need uh, that, that God has built into us to search for him. And so you're coming to God ultimately as a whole person. And I know when you read uh, Lewis's story, which I recount in the first part of my book, uh, he's got all these different elements of his life that are not not in balance. They're not together. They're out of sync. Mm-hmm. His mind is going one way. His emotions are going another um, his mind as an atheist tells him there is not a universe that provides meaning and joy. And yet, um, he has this deep need. He just can't quite push away for meaning and joy. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit, uh, different concept from just sheer truth and making an intellectual acceptance of truth. It's, it's ultimately he's saying when you come to God, he gets all of you and he fixes all of you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What can we learn from Lewis's faith journey and well-thought-out faith? Because you were talking about his journey from atheist to then accepting um, Christianity. So what can we learn from his journey? I think for one thing, uh, you, you, we learn that you you have to keep pursuing. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that maybe the most quoted, the most quoted biblical verse in Lewis throughout his writings is um, those who seek, find. Those who Mm -hmm. truly seek will find. And that is really his life story. Almost 20 years, 20 years Mm -hmm. of searching from his early teens when he lost his faith, when his mother died and his prayers weren't answered to save her. And uh, she was his rock and his security. Uh, and then intellectually, he went to boarding schools, private boarding schools, and they damaged his faith severely. And so from early teens, he records being a non-believer and an atheist. And he didn't become a Christian until just around 30 years of age, mm-hmm. 20 years. Wow. But he didn't give up. And, and partly that's the strength of that divinely given need for meaning and for joy and so he's partly giving witness to that, and he's partly giving witness because he's thinking it through. He's got a lot of thoughts about this that he's picked up from uh, different worldviews, and he's exploring all those different worldviews. So his intellect, 
his deep need in his heart. They're all working together eventually to bring him to that point of conversion, but it's almost 20 year search. So never, never give up or give up on anybody else. Yeah. What was his tipping point, if you will, to accept the Christian faith? I think, um, of course, you know, it's, it's a building process and things were being built into his thinking that he may not have uh, reacted to uh, at the time, but uh, he was wounded in the war. He read um, G.K. Chesterton's Everlasting Man while he was in the hospital. And for the first time during his atheist uh, period of time, um, he um, saw the Christian outline of history and began to see the claim that Jesus was the central pivotal point of history. Uh, Then he moves to Oxford, gets his first job, put in the English department, and he's a cocky, arrogant atheist. (laughs) And there's Tolkien, who's an Orthodox Christian believer and Catholic Christian who understands orthodox if you understand orthodoxy and you intellectually process it you're not going to be too terribly intimidated by a squeaky little atheist to be really frank right and and so you get Chesterton you get other things he was reading you get Tolkien in his life speaking to him uh, you get all these influences that he eventually it's almost like um, um, a combination lock the different tumblers have to fall in place and and he's struggling too because he knows if what they're saying is true, he'll have to give himself away to God. Mm-hmm. And he's very much self-controlling person. And um, and so he, he began to struggle with even that. And I think that's a very typical human trait. You know, you know, you need to do this as 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 the truth of of Christianity looms larger in your thinking, but you're all you're also resistant. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like an approach avoidance. Uh, Mm -hmm. But he eventually gave in and and believed in God, began going to church and chapel at Oxford, and then a a short while later became uh, a robust Christian and believed in Jesus. So that was actually a kind of a dual process, believing in God and uh, then later, just a little later, believing in Jesus and becoming um, a Christian. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, that's, that's, um, I think, the tipping point was probably he if you look at what he says his late night walk with uh, Tolkien uh, and Hugo Dyson around Addison's walk uh, it's on the side of uh, Modlin College Oxford it's a little woods with the lake and there's a little dirt path and uh, they were talking about how he could think intellectually about the truth of the incarnation and the significance of the incarnation he couldn't quite you can believe in God, but to believe that God was identified with the historical person, Jesus, a first century Nazareth, and all the meaning we invest with that, um, he couldn't come. To, and so finally, that talk, he says, really reoriented his thinking, and he became a Christian shortly thereafter. Oh, mm-hmm. How can we take, because Lewis spent, as you said, 20 years exploring different different things intellectually. How can we take his faith journey and study and then apply it appropriately to our own journeys? Well, of course, I would say there's both the universal and the particular aspects, and it's the universal aspects 
that I think we have to key on if we're going to apply it to ourselves. Okay. Uh, if God builds human beings all the same universally, then there's going to be some commonalities. But then there are also going to be particularities that just you can't duplicate. They won't compare. Mm -hmm. And I think there'll always be that universal versus the particular uh, way of analyzing what was universal in humans, uh, in uh, uh, Lewis's search, I think, was that there is a need to find truth. There's a need to find meaning and joy. And he pursued those. He was a good steward of his divinely given powers of reasoning, which were considerable. But he was also increasingly paying attention to this deep need, a human need for meaning. Mm -hmm. And those two threads weave together in Lewis's life. And so I think everybody has to pay attention to their own human nature, um, needing truth, needing meaning. Those are universals. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, ultimately needing God, of course. But the particularities, you know, are pretty hard to duplicate. Um, the amazing education he had, his amazing abilities, we don't all have those. We have our different gifts, our different abilities, but uh, those are hard to duplicate. I know particularly the way he expresses his need for joy. I yes. personally I personally don't relate to that. Uh -huh. I don't have an emotional personality. And so I, I think, well, if people think that Lewis's quest for joy, lifelong quest for joy and meaning and fulfillment as a human being, which he didn't find in other worldviews. They didn't present a universe in which that's even possible. Uh -huh. But but if we take that and we go for the emotive language, the emotional language he uses, I'm thinking I don't relate to that. Uh -huh. <clears throat> so in the book, I try to make a point that we should pay attention to uh, – the universal human need for joy and meaning, but it's packaged differently in different people because of their own emotional structures. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's a better way of applying Lewis um, and what happened to Lewis in universal terms that should happen to all human beings. We should seek truth, meaning, and fulfillment in God. What is the role of philosophers and theologians in our own faith? I mean, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, like, sure. Lewis had, his after his exploration, he had his beliefs and way of thinking about faith and how um, Christianity worked, if that's an appropriate way to say it. Yeah. Um, so, so how can we, what is that role? Like, because I, I think what I sometimes feel like, or I'm not sure if this is the right way, but um, like he spent so much time thinking about it, so it must be correct, and therefore I should believe the same thing too. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think that Lewis would not want us to do that, of course, just believe on his prestige or his lovability. He would want us to believe what's true on its own grounds, and if he's helped us see those grounds, those logical grounds, the evidence, the reasoning he presents, the re the re way it resonates with our humanity. All of these things are good grounds, and they all come together for Lewis. But he'd want the, us to own the process and not just take it secondhand from him, even mm -hmm. though he certainly led the way 
mm-hmm. and opened up a lot of ways of thinking and understanding to others. And it's he's much beloved for it. He'd want us to own it and think it through for ourselves. And that can include reading philosophy and theology, and um, but not everybody is is an academic or going to read some of the most technical and sophisticated stuff. And that's all okay, but we all have philosophical ideas and we all have theological ideas. And it's important that those ideas be as clear and as um, accurate and helpful as we can make them according Mm -hmm. to our our ability and our background, you know. Yes. No, I, I understand that. I think I'm getting to the point in my own faith where I'm like, I don't, I mean, my faith is definitely personal to me, but I want to understand more about it and how it works instead of just being like, this is what the church has told me or my parents have told me, um, my friends have told me. I want to understand and to be able to think through some of the things on my own. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Um, So you said that you'd been a fan of Lewis, a scholar of Lewis since undergrad. Are there any similarities between your faith journey and Lewis's faith journey? I think I think um, on the universals. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the, I think I was a kid who was not ever a, but not on the particularities. Like um, I was never an official unbeliever or um, atheist, as he claimed to be early on. Um, I was just a, a kid who was lost. <laughs> and from and search, but searching, I was a thoughtful kid, and so uh, I validate the search just like Lewis validates the search. You've got to be on a search, and the biblical promise, of course, is that those who search earnestly and sincerely will find. And so, from my early teens, I was a searcher. That's true, and a thinker. Um, I, I remember I remember reading um, several dialogues of Plato. I remember reading Aristotle when I was 13 or so, something like that. Oh, wow. <clears throat> From a book club, a dollar book club. <laughs> hey, well, in my teens, you could buy books for a dollar. Oh, wow. But, 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 but at any rate, um, uh, I think that the, the combination of good books and good friends in Lewis's background search is important, and I'd say the same for me. Uh, that uh, particularly when I began dating a United Methodist minister's daughter in high school, yes, my high school sweetheart, and she was getting me around her United Methodist minister family. Her dad was the local pastor of the Methodist church. That was an amazing influence, and he would give me books to explain Christianity and so forth, and take time with me. Uh, <clears throat> so. For Lewis, it was Tolkien and Dyson and others influencing him. Um, and for me, it was the particular friends who, and uh, people in my life who influenced me. So I think that's a similarity. And I think the similar emphasis on intellect, the similar emphasis on trying to communicate to others, help others to understand clearly, uh, the gospel and its claims. I think all those are some similarities. And by the way, we celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary in June. Oh, wow. Congratulations. No, no kid. Yeah, that, so that's my high school sweetheart. Oh, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. 
So your book includes, I believe it was for the first time in publication, letters that Lewis and Thomas Van Osdall exchanged. Can you introduce us to these letters? Yes, there are volumes, large volumes of Lewis correspondence. And you, when you put those things together, you always hope that all the different letters of Lewis that you can get a hold of and publish have come together. Um, and here, you, who would think, I mean, I guess you'd think, well, how do you ever know you've got them all? <laughs> a few years ago, as I mentioned in the book, in the appendix where they are present in the book, that a few years ago, Ashland University near Cleveland found these letters. Um, Thomas Van Osdell was a scientist in their science department and wanted to write a book for general, the sort of general culture, explaining the role of science and how impactful, how influential it's been in general culture and that it actually uh, is something that religion needs to uh, take account of and not be blind to or naive about. And, and it's a human achievement. It's a major human activity. And we have to encounter it uh, correctly. And he thought that there was a way of sort of formulating a Christian engagement with science, but yet explaining real science, not fake science or not, not amateur science. And see, But he, he knew Lewis was the great communicator. This was in the uh, early months, I guess more middle of 1963, hmm. uh, the year Lewis died. And so Lewis had, was just be in the process of becoming an invalid, but still hmm. answering fan mail and that kind of thing. And so we found five letters. They were given to the university by a friend of the family uh, who, you know, cleaning out the estate and things like that. And so the university has the originals on display in the library. But the letters ask about Lewis's advice, his advice on a science and Christianity volume. And you see it in the early letters. Lewis is giving some advice, and they're having a nice chat back and forth. Uh -huh. Then one letter by Van Osdell is missing, and the reply by Lewis was found. And that's the last letter, just almost a month or so before he died and um, in November. So uh -huh. this would be maybe like in October. And, it, and the, the, it's totally changed. The conversation has changed. So we can only infer what Van Osdell's letter must have said. Because Lewis says, I'm so sorry to hear of the death of your teenage son. Uh -huh. So we're no longer talking science. Uh -huh. And Van Osdell has revealed he lost his teenage, his only son, his teenage son, in a car accident and is grieving and not sure if he'll finish the book as expected and those kinds of things. And so Lewis immediately switches to a sympathetic response saying, I know exactly what you're feeling. I too know what it's like to have lost what you love most. Mm -hmm. And he's alluding, of course, to his own loss of his wife, Joy. Mm -hmm. And by, by a charming coincidence, he sought for joy all his life, found it in the Christian God, and then he married, late in life, uh, the American woman named 
joy. <laughs> I thought that was beautiful and really funny. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he, uh, he, t- he taps into his own sorrow and his own sense of loss from a few years before when he had lost joy. And uh, it's a very human letter. It's a great letter. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, very human Lewis. Yes, very empathetic and compassionate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How did you get access to these letters? Well, the president of Ashland at the time um, called me. knew I, I had written some stuff on Lewis, and he knew me, and uh, called me and said, would you come up and we'll do a, kind of an unveiling of these letters, and you will speak about their importance and talk a little bit about Lewis. And since Van Osdell was a scientist and much beloved by the university there, uh, he says, maybe do something that touches on science and so I put together a talk and, and did that. And uh, before I left, um, I mentioned to them that I wanted to do this book and I'd like to touch base with them and get facsimiles or something of those letters and, and their permission to reprint. And so uh, that eventually developed and they were in the book. But um, uh, yeah, I was just invited uh, kind of out of the blue. I didn't expect it, but uh, to come and, and uh, be part of the sort of a public relations event, which, yeah. you know, uh, being identified with Lewis gives every institution prestige that can do it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How cool is that? What an opportunity. I don't think it was being identified with me. <laughs> <laughs> So, Dr. Peterson, as we're talking about Thomas Van Osdall and C.S. Lewis and faith and science, what is the relationship between those two things? Well, speaking for Lewis, so to speak, and uh, that would be my own view as well, um, science is an important human activity uh, spawned by God-given gifts of intellect and the ability to... um, inquire and learn truth about his world or parts of his world. Usually we say the physical world, nature, and all mm-hmm. the different sciences of nature. And Lewis, you know, he, he was um, broadly educated, mostly in the humanities, philosophy, literature, uh, but he respected mainline science. And he had a pretty good understanding of its methodology that it was kind of religiously neutral. It didn't, science wasn't about answering religious questions. Is there a God? Is there not a God? That's hardly a scientific question, and there's no mm-hmm. scientific answer. And so uh, he was very wary of uh, attempts to use uh, amateurish interpretations of science, either to prove or to disprove faith or questions that were not scientific questions. I would say Lewis's very sane approach is to say within the Christian worldview, all of life and reality make sense and fit together. And science and its study of nature is part of all of reality. And it's within the Christian worldview that its very existence makes sense. Mm-hmm. That we have a rational world able to be physically studied, understood, and in some worldviews, that's hard to get. And 
how about the rationality that humans exhibit in science? Some worldviews don't even support rationality all that well. Mm-hmm. And Lewis was particularly a, uh, an opponent of secularism and naturalism and materialism, those kinds of attitudes that he thought were the dominant worldview of secular Western culture. Mm-hmm. So we call it naturalism. And naturalism believes that the world came about by chance, and it's only physical. There are no supernatural um, beings. And if that's the case, Lewis asks in his argument from reason, how in the world reason, the ability to think logically, ever occurred in a naturalistic universe? So he's already, in his argument from reason, which occurs in his book Miracles, actually, uh, he's already suggesting that really only a, a worldview that supports rationality in a full and robust way could support science. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then you also need a rational, coherent world to study. And he, once again, uh, looks at other worldviews and says Christianity says it best. A rational God created a rational world to be rationally studied. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's more the relationship than some of these attempts you see all the time in popular religious literature of trying to use science to prove God's existence or, or uh, also popular and academic literature that thinks science disproves God. Mm-hmm. So at any rate, that's, uh, I think, a a way of looking at what Lewis is doing. He's appreciative of mainline science, not trying to deny it or um, be threatened by it, but to frame it, to say what kind of a world its very existence can occur within. Mm -hmm. Yes, that makes sense. So you were talking about this a little bit, but I have to ask too, um, with the intellectual side of Lewis's faith, where is the faith element for him and then for us as well? Very good point. I think he views faith holistically, meaning that it's not just a a feeling or a choice. You hear that occasionally, Um, but it's the whole person and the whole person includes the intellectual, the, the need for truth, the need for understanding, um, so that not everybody can be an academic or uh, read sophisticated theology and philosophy, but they still have a need for truth and understanding within the limits of whatever capacities and gifts and background we have. So in that regard, that's a universal that all humans need to find truth about God. And within that context of mentally or intellectually understanding the truth about God, we respond in trust and faith. Uh Otherwise, you get a kind of a blind faith or emotional faith without guidance by truth. So a lot of his journey, for example, could be interpreted as him looking for a a mental framework within which he could exercise valid faith. Mm, And he found found it after about a 20-year search. Yeah, that makes sense. Why is it so important to have 
a well-thought-out faith, or as Lewis would put it, um, to align ourselves with reality in our intellect and our faith. Yeah. Lewis, uh, one of his uh, recurring themes is that in coming to God and exercising obedient faith in God, we are aligning ourselves with reality. And he uses a capital R. Mm, mm -hmm. So all of life, actually, outside of religious concerns, is partly a process of aligning ourselves with reality. When I know how reality is, and, 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 and I'm not mistaken about it, then I know the truth. Right now I'm sitting in a chair and I have to respond appropriately to the kind of reality that chair is. I can't float in the air and uh, I can't uh, do certain things. It's, it's got its own reality that I can't create, I can't change. I'm responding to it as we talk. And Lewis's point is that God is a reality we don't invent, we can't change, we can't change the terms on which we are to have relationship with him. And so in aligning myself with the reality that's God, I have to be the one who changes. Mm-hmm. I have to submit, obey, allow myself to be transformed because I can't come to God and make demands. I'd like to be this way or I'd like to be that way. It's really much more about having his life um, take root in our lives and grow in our lives and transform us in ways that he chooses. So that's um, something that, uh, number one, for Lewis has the intellectual aspect. I have to understand this about God. I have to own it intellectually, but then I have to personally live into it. Mm, mm-hmm. Kind of like you have to know the truth and live the truth. Good point. I think that's I think that's what he's saying, really. Okay. So with that, one of the quotes that you used in your book from your Christianity really stood out to me about how we um, search for Christ. And so the quote was, as long as your own personality is what you're bothering about, you're not going to him at all. Look for Christ and you will find him. And so that really kind of puzzled me because I'm not sure what it means to truly seek Christ. Because I mean, for me, a lot of times I think about, oh, I got really frustrated at this person. I need to change that about me. So how can we truly seek, or not I need to change that about me, but you know what I mean. Like that's something that I need God to work on. And so for me, it sometimes does revolve around my outward actions. So what does it mean to truly seek Christ? Yeah, yeah, excellent question. I think using that quote, that as long as you're uh, bothering about your own personality, you're not really going to find Christ. Uh-huh. It is a super, super quote. He says that in so many different ways in different writings. His point, I think, is the, the human uh, problem of self-obsession, self-control, uh, self-preoccupation is uh, one of his big targets. Uh-huh. And we often want to come to God for selfish, either we keep ourselves from coming to God because we don't want to give up control. That was his problem. But even in coming to God, you can come for reasons that are less than worthy or less than positive, like you want something. And um, he's partly saying you have to come to God for who he is in himself. 
and you can't be preoccupied with your own self and your own sort of prescription for how you'd like to come to God, what you'd like God to do for you, X, Y, and Z. That particularly comes out in Great Divorce. Mm -hmm. Uh, In The Great Divorce, this dream of uh, people in the realm of the damned going to heaven to see if they could maybe like to stay there. But then they'd have to conform to reality, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And they were, they were enjoying their unreality, uh, which is hell mm-hmm. for Lois. That's unreal. So um, they encounter many of these people who are just visiting. They're, they're ghosts. They're insubstantial. They're not fully real because they haven't given themselves to God and, and uh, wanted to be in heaven. And they may see a loved one who's deceased and in heaven and want to be with a loved one, but they, they will be told, well, you can be here if you'll give yourself to reality. Let, let God himself change you. And they'll say, you mean, you mean I could get to see Reginald or I could get to see this other person or I could get to do this or that if I come to God? And then the advice is, no, you can't come that way. You have to come to God because you need God and everything else will fall into place. But you can't use God as a means to your end. God Uh is an end. He's an end in himself. Hmm. That's so interesting. Now, I I should probably add that Lewis uh, early in life um, sort of believed that um, early in his Christian life, you come to God Purely as a matter of principle, because he's the ruler of all, and we're the subjects, and we finally acknowledge that. But really, as his thought about Christian conversion uh, matured, he realized most of us don't come exactly that way. And you can't say you can't come to God unless you do it out of the right principles. That There's this deep, divinely given need a need for God, a need for meaning, a need for joy. And that drives us as well. And is it selfish? Well, it's certainly about ourselves. It's about our deep need that God gave us. As Augustine said, and Lewis was a big fan of Augustine, thou Mm -hmm. hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And so pursuing that need is not irrational. It's not unproductive. Um, So he believes in that as well. Pursue truth and pursue meaning. But he was really pointing out lesser motivations like using God to get what I want um, or get to uh, some, some other good that's less than what conversion and Christian life is really all about. Uh, he points a lot of that out in in Great Divorce. Some of that comes out in Screwtape as well. Mm-hmm. Studying human personalities and their way of rationalizing how not to square up to God. Can some of those lesser reasons for coming to God help you get to the deeper reason and the ultimate reason for coming to God? I think so. I think so. I don't think God is... I mean, you think about this the amazingly humble God who will take us on virtually any terms. Who knows what motivations we might have? 
Who knows what kind of confusions we might have? We'll come to him. It'll all start working out. I think that's a big theme in Lewis. He didn't come to God perfectly. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? According to some Mm -hmm. prescribed method, none of us, I don't think, do come in some perfectly prescribed method. We come how we come, the needs we have. Um, I think his mature reflections on that process allow him to pick out some themes like our need for truth, our need for meaning. But yes, I mean, just being fearful, just being needy. Uh, If it brings you to God, hey, it's all part of prevenient grace. It's all part of the grace that seeks and draws. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask about Lewis and the problem of evil and how he reconciled that um, with a loving God, especially because right now, as we're recording, we're in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. So we're all kind of dealing with some version of the question, if God is loving and good, how did this happen? Yes. Excellent question. It's the perennial human question. And Lewis knew that and wrote a whole book, The Problem of Pain, where you get kind of his academic answer to that. And briefly, he wove together two elements um, to talk about why God would create a world like this. The mm-hmm. loving, good God would create a good world, a good world that um, allows for us responding to God or, or rejecting God um, and having relationships to others. He said, what kind of features have to be part of that kind of world? Well, there has to be a structure to nature. There have to be natural laws. Nature has to have a regular operation as our context for action and response. Also, we have to have a very robust kind of free will where we can do some amazingly good things or some very, very bad things. And that's within our range of free will. It's a very risky kind of world for God to create but there's no relationship without risk in marriage or in friendship or in other interpersonal contexts. If there's power and control, you destroy relationship automatically. That's a law of life. So Lewis paints a picture in pain of, um, of a world that's got these two features, uh, natural laws, free will, And the point of that world is to allow us to grow toward God if we will choose and build relationship with God. So that's his academic answer. And he's often almost oversimplified by people who quote some of these things, uh, that pain is meant to get our attention and make us return to God. And there's, it can, it certainly can do that, or it can turn us against God because Mm -hmm. it's so intense. People react differently. So sometimes his interpreters, I think, aren't fair to the just the sheer riskiness that he's trying to suggest. Um, So many goods, so many pleasures, so many wonderful things to do in God's world, but there's so many ways to go wrong. It's a a strange mixture that creates the the question. Why would a God create a world that, that turns out like this? Yeah. And his, his point is that it's not controlled, it's a risk, it's a relational risk, um, and that we should 
be thankful for the life we have, do the best by it, turn to God, live into God, and we will have done what this world it was meant to, to offer us. Mm-hmm. Now, on the personal level, not the academic so much, when the bachelor Lewis late in life married Joy, um, Joy Gresham, mm-hmm. this American woman who was a, a fan and a reader and a, an accomplished poet uh, on her own, um, they married and he said, I found a happiness that I didn't think would ever come my way. And then soon thereafter, she's diagnosed with cancer. It's eating away her femur. And there's a lot of pain, suffering. The treatments were hard. Uh, they pray. She, they think she might be healed. She's not healed. Uh, she dies in an agonizing death. And he witnesses all of this. And he's torn up about this. He's just heartbroken. So his academic answer from pain um, he should have said, well, it's a risky world. Uh, natural processes didn't go our way. And um, that's that. But, of course, that's an academic answer. And he began to feel it very personally when he lost her. It ch- ch- changes things. And it's not that the academic answer is false. It's that the academic answer is not the whole answer. And so Lewis is actually angry, thinking that uh, this should never have happened. It's a very personal, deeply personal thing. He writes his book, A Grief Observed, which is kind of a diary, where he journals all of his thoughts and feelings. And there's anger at God, questioning God, uh, wondering what it's worth to be Christian if you can't have things go well. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, basically, by the end of the book, he's saying, I'm calming down. I've processed my emotions. I feel like I've got a deeper faith, but it's not a faith that is untried and Mm -hmm. has never suffered. And I see that happiness can include suffering. So I have happiness with God, but suffering now has been part of my happiness. Uh So it's very interesting. So he's got the academic answers, which I think are exactly correct, actually. Natural law, free will, makes a chance a universe, but it's it's the chance to do good. It's the chance to do evil, and we must choose. But we're also set in this physical setting, which is not always um, going to give us uh, the most pleasant experiences. We will get sick. We, we will lose loved ones. It's a, it's a strange world in that regard, but it's a world where we can touch one another, where we can have um, all sorts of opportunities to do good and be thankful for those opportunities. Um, so at any rate, I would say that the fragility of life in this world is still a gift, but it mm-hmm. is fragile. And he's, he emphasizes that considerably in both his academic and his personal reactions. And to put, to put those two books together, Problem of Pain, Grief Observed, is, is an amazing exercise. And mm-hmm. see how he's, he's dealing with two levels. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting how when he was grieving Joy's passing, passing it ended up 
ultimately bringing him closer to God because of how he processed his grief and processed it um, with faith. But then earlier in his life, of course, he was much younger and not as mature and things like that. But his mom's death drove him completely away from faith. That's exactly correct. It's how you respond. It's not the event or the situation itself that determines the outcome. It's the human response. As they say, the same sun that melts the butter hardens the clay. Mm, that's true. It's the personal response. And when you look at the, the uh, pandemic, I think in an academic way, you can say kind of in a Louisian fashion, nothing has changed. This is not a new piece of evidence. There have been goods and evils mixed in this world for all time, for all history. This is not somehow tipping the scales more toward there not being a God. From the Lisbon earthquake to the Spanish flu, to world wars, to whatever, offset against on the other side of the ledger, all the human goods of love for family and friends and good deeds and accomplishments. Uh, it's, it's in the balance, but it doesn't tip the balance. And just like with Joy's death, people had been dying throughout history and loved ones were grieving for them. There was no, Joy's death was not a new piece of evidence never before thought of. But it, it didn't happen to Lewis. Those other things didn't happen to him. And it was personal to Lewis. And that's that other dimension we were talking about where you have to get yourself in a frame of mind where you're allowed to feel your grief and process it however you process it. He processed it in a pretty intellectual way. If you read the terminology and grief, that really, this is this is his journal, <laughs> you know. Right. But, but still, he comes up to this very deeply personal um, trust that his, right. his faith is still there, but it's been through the fire, and it's, it's in a sense, deeper. Uh, he still would love to have her back. Yeah, of course. You know? But uh -huh. but he he, has, he is where he is, and he can't have her back. So he's testifying to a greater faith. But it doesn't change the intellectual situation, the academic problem, and a good response. Just to add one more piece of the same old, same old. Yeah. You know Thanks. what I'm saying? A lot of yeah. people don't get that. And, uh, you know, I hear occasionally people say, did God bring this pandemic? And so, and I... I just have to say the world has always been capable of natural processes that either benefit us or harm us. And we do our best to navigate. And this is not new. Mm. So it's not some new judgment or anything like that. It's just a risky world on both the physical level and the uh, spiritual level. Mm. Yes. Dr. Peterson, I have so enjoyed our conversation today. We've talked about a lot of things. Um, before we close, is there anything else you want to mention that we haven't talked about already? I can't, I can't think of much other than to say I think the emerging theme of Lewis is that this is a relational God, a Trinitarian life, a self-living, self-giving life that is at the heart of reality. And it created everything else, not to get anything, but to give. And to mm -hmm. give the opportunity for relationship 
with others and relationship with that life at the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. And that everything Lewis does is sort of under that umbrella. And I th I, that's the amazing um, theme, I think, that, that uh, frames Lewis. And even in talk about evil and suffering, it's talked about within a relational universe. Mm -hmm. that, that it's structured for relationship, but it's risky. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but never get, never lose sight of the fact or um, forget that it's about something very good. It's a good kind of world created by, by a perfectly good God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So as we wrap up the podcast today, we have one question that we ask every guest who comes on. So because the show is called the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast, what is one practice that can be spiritual or otherwise that is helping you thrive in your life right now? Well, I hope that some of these um, things we've talked about, themes in Lewis, will also help people thrive and flourish in their Christian life. I think that's one of the big attractions that people have always had to Lewis, they feel like he's not just explaining things intellectually, but they're actually being nourished spiritually mm. by his writing. So I, I do recommend that uh, people think about that in Lewis and, of course, by the book. Yes. But, <laughs> but I know uh, I'm on sabbatical this term, yeah. and so I didn't have some of the disruptions that some people teaching had in changing their teaching format, you know. And that was quite a scramble, and we did it. But um, so while I'm sort of secluded at home, I've actually been been buried in trying to finish a, a book for Cambridge. It's on uh, biology and um, science and religion, and that encounter, which is so much in the um, in the really in, 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 the, in the public culture these days, the, the, that encounter between religion and science. Um, doing that for Cambridge, turn it in soon. So I'm just, I'm just pushing really hard, probably too hard, because I'm, 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 I'm a workaholic. And as I do that, I don't know if this is helpful to others, because others are probably coming out of sheltering in place and being... Um, careful with their health. But as I, I'm, I'm, for all these weeks I've been alone, I've been thinking about how great it's going to be to be back with family and friends mm -hmm. that we cannot be with. That is very sustaining to me. I'm, a, I'm all about family. And I know people will know the, the standard uh, Christian practices. You know, there's not a lot I can say about that, that probably people don't know, but if you want something kind of personal for me and sustaining, it's it's the looking forward to, it's the anticipation of when we'll be past all of this and we'll be with loved ones. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to that too. And that I'm just like, if we can get through this, there is hope on the other side. Exactly. Exactly. So Dr. Peterson, thank you so very much for your time today. I've greatly enjoyed our conversation and found it very helpful to my own faith and thought life and journey personally. So thank you very much. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Hope everybody else did too. I'm sure they will. Thank you. Thank you. 
Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Dr. Peterson. I hope you found it helpful on your journey to see and think through the truths found in Lewis's worldview and that it may have helped you come to a deeper understanding of God as we set our hearts to truly seek after Him. If you haven't already, I hope you'll go ahead and subscribe to our podcast in your favorite podcast player, and you can follow us in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at at Asbury Seminary. Until next time, I hope y'all have a great day and go do something that helps you thrive.